Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, damen und herren, from what was once an inarticulate mass of lifeless tissues, may I now present a cultured, sophisticated man about town. Hit it! to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Perfect Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about the Milky Way, microscopes, and syrup. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Gerald Edelman, who will be discussing the scientific exploration of consciousness. Also, we'll find out what koalas eat. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Very, very, very happy. Is it because the happy guy's back out on Sprawl Plaza? I hadn't quite noticed, but I guess that too now. <laughs> okay. But the one thing on my mind is the new DVD set of Star Wars. I heard he actually destroyed the old version so that you can no longer get the old Star Wars. Because he said, if you fell in love with a half-made movie, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's his prerogative. I guess he made the film. But I guess there's a couple of digital enhancements, including Jabba being a little better in the first. Jabba the Hutt, you mean? Yes. He's a little bit digitally enhanced. As long as he's enhanced in the right place. <laughs> well, some fans were not too happy about was at the end of Return of the Jedi, you actually see Hayden Christensen rather than the old Anakin Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> that was like one of the high points. Or points. rather low points, I think. So is this related in any way to our science news? In fact, there is. <laughs> the stars, in fact. But uh, have you ever wondered what's at the center of the Milky Way? I thought it was a bunch of black holes. Some scientists now think it could be sugar. Sugar? Yes, it's sweeter than you thought, huh? I would have never guessed sugar. Yeah. Salt, maybe. but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so some radio astronomers were looking at some clouds near the center of the galaxy, and they've detected large gases of glycoaldehyde, two carbon sugars. And eventually, these could be used as building blocks for higher sugars, the riboses, which could eventually lead to actual life. And these are just existing in the interstellar matter? In fact, they exist as these clumps in these clouds, and they're two or three kelvins, which is, oh. you know, very cold, but they're frozen there, and they've been able to detect the spectrum from these gases. Do they know how these carbohydrates might have formed? Because that's pretty rare, I'd imagine. It's not clear at all, but it indicates that in the foundations of life, there are large quantities of it existing uh-huh. in the universe. For example, if these clouds actually clump together and eventually form planets, then there's some theories as to how life may have originated from building blocks in space. Well, there's also the hypothesis that the building blocks came from asteroids impacting the Earth, carrying interstellar matter as well. True. So it, it could be maybe these things will form comets or other objects yeah. which eventually crash into other planets. Sure. So this was work led by astronomer Dr. Jan Hallis at NASA's Goddard Space Center in Maryland in the recent edition of The Scotsman.
Well, more bad news for George Bush in this upcoming election. <laughs> Although he seems to be like a Teflon president these days. Yeah. It would seem, but hopefully the tide will turn. And another blow to his platform is evolution appears to be true. Or maybe he's evolving in well, his beliefs. He's probably devolving in his <laughs> So a group of researchers uh, led by Cynthia Beale, a physical anthropologist at the Case Western Reserve University, has shown examples of evolution in action. Really? Yes. Yeah, so uh, what they've actually been able to do is show changes in oxygen sensitivity among Tibetans and their hemoglobin carrying capacity. And that's due to a genetic effect or is it more of a physical effect where the body adapts without changing their genes? That's a good question. So what they've actually done is they've gone to Tibet and they interviewed huge lineages of people to construct lineage trees. Mm-hmm. And then what they did is they actually measured their uh, oxygen carrying capacity. They showed is that families of certain people had a greater ability to carry oxygen than other groups in the same population. And the uh, pattern of inheritance based on this lineage looked like it was due to one single gene. Wow, so there must have been one Superman who was able to uh, leave his legacy behind. And they're all thanking him for the legacy. It's a lot of oxygen, I guess. So it's quite fascinating, though, and his work was published in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So, Charles, how good are your eyes? What's the the best resolution you can get? Uh, about 400 DPI. <laughs> okay, so you can at least notice the girls. Within the margin of error, yes. Not although too far somet- away. Although sometimes I wandered to the wrong restroom by mistake. but <laughs> That's too bad. Need better resolution. Yes. Well, in case you're wondering how good microscopes are these days, uh-huh. you can get it down to some angstrom. Well, this is certainly not using a light microscope. No. We're talking about scanning electron microscopy. Okay. What some scientists at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory and a company called Nyon have done is they've been able to look at silicon crystals and be able to discern uh, individual atoms. Okay, but they've been able to do this for years with scanning electron microscopy. Right, but now we're getting resolutions which are much better than what they had before, which was 1.3 angstroms. Okay. Now we're going down all the way to less than one angstrom. The the angstrom is already on the order of the bond distance, so right. we're seeing better than what's separating the atoms. Right. Wow, that's that's pretty fascinating. So most of the pictures that you see are usually these cloudy pictures of right. electron density. Right. So now it looks a lot sharper, I imagine. Yeah, and they believe it can go down all the way to 0.3 angstrom in the future. Well, the most amazing example of that I saw way back when was when the folks at IBM were able to manipulate single uh, atoms of, and they were able to spell it IBM. Well, eventually I think they can also do 3D imaging with these microscopes, not just look at the surface. So this was work carried out by Stephen Pennycook at the uh, Oak Ridge National Lab, and it was published in the recent edition of Science. Right, and finally, Frank, how many sticky situations have you been in recently? I want more characters as spiky. I don't get attached. So you're more like Velcro. Yes. <laughs> well, so which do you think you would swim faster in, water or syrup? Uh, water, of course. Uh, I don't know. Maybe if I was ejecting syrup out, maybe I'll be <laughs> accelerating a little faster. <laughs> sort of like one of those squids with the siphon jet, yeah? Yes. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's a mechanism they hadn't quite considered. But in <laughs> fact, it turns out that you're wrong. Oh, okay. Then, in fact, you swim just as fast in syrup as you do in water. Wow. Is it due to some non-Newtonian effect? Well, in fact, it's interesting that you said this because this was actually argued way back in the 17th century when Newton was writing his Principia Mathematica, mm-hmm. and he argued this with Charles Huygens. But a group of researchers led by Edward Cussler and his student Brian Gettelfinger, who was actually a swimmer who narrowly missed out at Olympic Games in Athens, uh-huh. they conducted an experiment where they had swimmers swim in either water uh-huh. or a pool full of guargum, okay. uh, which is basically a syrupy uh, mixture. Right. And it turns out that all the volunteers, either competitive or non-competitive swimmers, swam about the same in both media. Interesting. What 
turns out, though, is that there's two competing effects. First is the drag factor. Right. And then the second is that you actually get additional pull from frictional force for actually pulling through the water. So you can actually drag yourself a lot stronger than you can in water. Right. So basically, they're saying the two effects cancel out. That's interesting. Yeah. So counterintuitive, and it's good for all those mud wrestlers out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of fluid dynamics, just an interesting experiment we could do at home. So it turns out that shampoo is non-Newtonian. And what you can do is, if you have a, a bottle of it, and stick like a pencil or a long tube or something, and you start spinning it, the fluid will start creeping up. And that's like an example of a non-Newtonian fluid, right. where the shearing causes the change of viscosity. Right. It does these weird, bizarre things. Very cool. Try that with your uh, shampoo bottle <laughs> instead of bathing. <laughs> And if people are interested in this, they can take a look in the American Institute of Chemistry and Engineering Journal. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Gerald Edelman will join us to discuss the scientific exploration of consciousness. So stay tuned. To Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, consciousness is an aspect of existence that many of us take for granted. The world appears as a unified whole, with sights and sounds drifting seamlessly from one moment to the next. But how do these conscious experiences arise? What areas of the brain are important, and can science give us the answers? Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss the scientific exploration of consciousness is Professor Gerald Edelman. Among his many roles, Professor Edelman is director of the Neurosciences Institute and professor and chair of the Department of Neurobiology at the Scripps Research Institute. He is the winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work on the structural diversity of antibodies, and he's the author of several books including Neural Darwinism, The Remembered Present, and A Universe of Consciousness. His new book, Wider Than the Sky, The Phenomenal Gift of Consciousness, explores the science of consciousness research for a general audience. Professor Edelman, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you, Mr. Lee. Well, it's really our pleasure to have you on the program. And, uh, you know, consciousness is one of those interesting issues in science, but one that a lot of people have thought might not really be amenable to scientific discovery. Is consciousness amenable to scientific inquiry? Well, that's the short answer is yes. It's true that up to very recently, it was the province mainly of philosophers and not of scientists, and that situation has changed to some degree because of the technical improvements in being able to record from the brain in a non-invasive fashion by various electrical tricks, and thanks to physics. So we now have a position in which we can perhaps study the neural correlates of consciousness, which uh, now a number of people are doing quite vigorously. 
And what really are the methods that people have been using to address first brain function and then consciousness? Well, there are two methods mainly. There are a number of others, but the two main methods are fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and the second is a fancy word called magnetoencephalography. The first measures the blood flow changes that accompany neuronal changes in a living subject's brain. The second one measures minute magnetic fields that are given out by the electrical currents that traverse inside neurons or nerve cells of the brain. The first one can measure the location of various centers of the brain as they are enacted and activated, and the second can see in a very, very rapid manner what happens in time with the currents of the brain. And so right now we have to put both matters together in order to make sense of what's going on. But there are some very interesting results. So one gives very high spatial resolution and the other is more sort of a temporal. Exactly. I see. In, in your book, in all of your books really, you talk about uh, your theory of consciousness as you title it the theory of neural group selection. Well, let's perhaps take this in step. Okay. First of all, I believe that the evidence strongly supports the view that the brain is not, in fact, a digital computer. Mm-hmm. That the brain is, in fact, something that evolution has put together in terms of an incredible circuitry which is capable of carrying out pattern recognition rather than logic. Of course, it can carry out logic in civilization after you train a person who has higher order consciousness in logic, he can do that. But it's not a logic machine first and foremost. It's a pattern recognition device. And it has, in fact, not been engineered. It's been developed by natural selection. The interesting thing is if it's not a computer, that it forgoes logic and a clock, how does it manage to keep everything together? Well, that's what this theory is about, this theory of neuronal group selection or neural Darwinism. It says that the brain develops incredible diversity of its circuits during actual embryonic development and later on in life. And secondly, what it develops is an arrangement at its synapses or connections from one nerve cell to another, in which the connections are strengthened and weakened, more or less as if there were a traffic cop on each particular synapse saying, you go here, you go there. Mm-hmm. Now, what one has to explain is that the connectivity of the brain is simply stunning. For example, the cortex of the brain, that wrinkled structure you see in pictures of the human brain, if unfolded, would be about the size of a table napkin and about as thick. It would have 30 billion nerve cells or neurons and 1 million billion connections. If you just counted one connection per second or one synapse per second, you just finish counting 32 million years later. If you calculate the number of possible paths, it's 10 followed by millions of zeros. There are 10 perhaps followed by 83 zeros of particles in the known universe. So it gives you respect for what evolution can mm-hmm. do. And this theory of neural Darwinism is supposed to explain how that diversity plays in to your recognition of the world. And the way it does is it has a huge number of repertoires of variants, and those that match are reinforced in their synaptic connections, and those that don't match are diminished. Well, this means, of course, that everybody's brain is quite unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, No two brains are alike, even identical twins. Finally, there is a very complex process, which I don't know I can explain on a short interview, called reentry, in which there are massively parallel reciprocal connections amongst brain areas, and a process of electrical stimulation across these various things couples the maps of the brain together, so they all act together. Now, finally, that process of reentry is, according to the theory, said to be the origin of consciousness in a part of your brain that connects to the cortex, the thalamus, the way station that connects all your sensory elements except for smell directly to the cortex. That thalamocortical system 
has a huge connectivity and it is considered to be essential and required for consciousness through this process of re-entry. Well, there's a long dialogue. <laughs> The selection then of these various neural circuits via this reentry mechanism then gives rise to various conscious experiences. Is that correct? Yeah. So let's say, what did evolution do? Well, mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, perhaps 250 million years ago, a circuitry was developed during development in which the thalamocortical connectivity was established back and forth in a reentrant fashion. And what that did is allowed an animal with that brain to carry out an incredible number of different discriminations, what you might call qualia. In fact, what the philosophers call qualia, the greenness of green, the redness of red, I think is a little bit too constricted. I believe that qualia are all the states you're experiencing and I'm experiencing now, and those qualia are those discriminations. So effectively speaking, the thalamocortical core, as we call it, a dynamic core, mm -hmm. is responsible for giving rise to all these incredible numbers of discriminations, and qualia are the discriminations. Obviously, an animal that could discriminate in this fashion has adaptive advantage and would be selected during evolution. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a lot in your book, can different neural populations then give rise to the same qualia? Oh, yes. That's a very interesting concept, one that people, again, find a little unfamiliar, and that is called degeneracy. I can give one example that might make it clear, and I will use the genetic code, and then I'll go back to neurons. Mm -hmm. The genetic code is a degenerate code. There are 20 amino acids that make up proteins, and coding for each one is a particular set of triplets of nucleotide bases of DNA and RNA. Mm -hmm. There are four different kinds, GTAC, and any three of those can form 64 different possible codons or triplet codons. Well, if you have 64 coding for 20 amino acids, uh, it turns out that the third position of each triplet can have any nucleotide, and it'll still be coding for the same amino acid. So now if you imagine there are 300 or so of these nucleotides strung together, 100 triplet codons for 100 amino acids in a row in a protein, then the number of possible sequences in which you've changed every third position any way you want by putting in one of four without changing the message means there's a huge number of different nucleotide strings that will specify the same amino acid protein string. And that is a typical case of degeneracy in which mm -hmm. different structures give rise to the same output or, or function. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of motif is carried out in, in biology. And That's really quite prominent in all of biology, but especially in the neural circuits of this dynamic thalamocortical core in which there are many different structural circuits that will yield the same outcome. So would this imply as well then that different structures in different brains could give rise to a similar quality? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well said. The fact is that it is a striking fact and a non-trivial one that your brain and my brain will be unique in the history of the universe. <laughs> Um, well, so we, previously on the program, we had on Christoph Koch, who along uh -huh. with the late Francis Crick, yep. uh, also involved in consciousness, and uh, that approach seems to be at uh, maybe a more uh, finer scale than uh, the global approach that you take. Well, I think what happened is that Crick particularly became convinced that the way one can approach consciousness is through visual consciousness, mm -hmm. and looking at the detailed visual surface of the brain, his colleague Koch and he were pursuing that line. I wouldn't say that my view is more global. I would say that, or that theirs is more particular. In fact, Crick uh, visited me several times in the last eight months or so, just before his recent mm -hmm. death, alas. And uh, he and I came to an agreement that what he and Koch call coalitions are the same as the states of what I call a dynamic core. Mm -hmm. So the essential ideas are very, very close, but they tend to emphasize visual 
consciousness where I include all the other kinds of sensory orders and all the higher order consciousness. I'll make a distinction, for example, between what I call primary consciousness, which is the ability to create a scene or all these complex discriminations that I was talking about, but in the, what I call the remembered present, right now. And not until you have animals which have semantic capabilities, and in our case, true language, mm. do you get higher order consciousness. If you have higher order consciousness, you can do what an animal that lacks it or has only primary consciousness. You can, in fact, have concepts of the past and the future, and you mm. can develop a social self through language. Animals clearly, although we can't absolutely prove this, are conscious, but have only primary consciousness. Mm. Our consciousness allows us to be conscious of being conscious. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned then that perhaps the science of consciousness must rely on human subjects because of the reporting ability. That's yeah, well asked. I mean, that, that's, I think, quite important because, you, you see, if you do the experiment on a human being, you can get a report. Mm -hmm. And if you set up your experiment in such a way that the subject doesn't know the setup and you do three or four different experimental arrangements mm -hmm. and they all converge on report, you can be pretty sure that that is the result of a conscious act on the part of the subject. Mm -hmm. It's a little harder when you do it with monkeys than with dogs. It can be done with so-called catch trials in monkeys, and that's been done by Logothetis in Germany. Mm. But the human gives you the reasonable confidence, that, since the person doesn't know how you're designing your experiment, that your results, if they converge, are not a miracle, but really the result of a conscious mm. effort on his part. Mm -hmm. Presume then at some point there will be an effort then to merge both the human and animal studies. Oh, yes. And in fact, we have done that with these methods. For example, Logothetis has measured from the monkeys looking at a um, phenomenon known as binocular rivalry. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. If I give you a red bar vertically and a green bar horizontally, and red and green lenses in your right and left eye respectively, then your brain and, and retina cannot fuse those two discordant images. So what happens is you first you see the red vertical, then you see the green horizontal, then the red vertical. That's called binocular rivalry. Mm. Well, a variant of this was done by Logothetis on monkeys, and what he saw was in the visual cortex, everything responded to the signal, but in the higher order cortex to which it connected, the so-called infrotemporal region, the response of the neurons was to the percept of the monkey. Mm. Now, the monkey couldn't report directly, but he had ways of checking. Mm -hmm. Well, we've done the same experiment in humans with magnetoencephalography where the human can report and press a button when they're conscious and when they're not, etc. And we find that there's a huge explosion of reentry all over the brain, front and back, side to side, when the person becomes conscious of one of those bars. So there's a concordance between these two neural correlates of consciousness in the monkey and the human. Mm. It's, it's certainly fascinating, but uh, we are running a little bit out of time here. I'm just curious to try and wrap up. What do you think uh, will be required then for uh, a true science of consciousness, or a scientific explanation of consciousness? Well, of course, we want to accumulate more and more examples of neural correlates of consciousness mm -hmm. to explain its properties, why it's unitary. In other words, why you have the whole impression, your hearing, your smell, your seeing, all make one whole picture yet that picture changes from time to time. You want to explain why consciousness has what they call intentionality, why, for the most part, it's about things, and I think that's because it's about perception as well, and you want to explain matters like qualia. Mm -hmm. And so there are two tasks, I think. One is to clarify these issues and find neural correlates of consciousness of the kind I talked about, and the second is to make sure you're clear in your logic and your thinking. For example, I think there is an advance in realizing that what consciousness 
gives as a result of evolution is the ability to make high-order discriminations, which are adaptive, and that clearly are those discriminations. Mm. Well, if you get the logic and the science together, there'd be one somewhat fantastic outcome that would really convince us, and that is if we could build a conscious artifact. Mm. If you could actually put together with these ideas uh, something which uh, you could verify as conscious. Now, of course, the implication there is it would have to have some kind of language to do just what I talked about with respect to report. When that happens, of course, some people will be thrilled, some people will be <laughs> horrified, but I think we'll have a confident notion that we really begin to understand this fascinating subject. Uh, I would certainly hope so. And uh, maybe as an even finer note, then, more philosophically, then, how long do you think this will be before we have... Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> uh, predictions of the future are hazardous even in science. Uh-huh. You can be sure sooner or later that as we understand this subject, that will come to pass because it's always been the case in scientific issues. Mm-hmm. I'm working by induction here, but every time science has found a principle, engineering has found a way to realize it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, what yes, we will. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you, uh, you can come and visit my mausoleum. <laughs> Professor Lillemo, though, I, I just want to thank you very much for joining us on uh, Berkeley Grox, a fascinating discussion, and uh, discussing your book, Wider Than the Sky, The Phenomenal Gift of Consciousness. Thank you, Mr. Lee. I appreciate the time. And you were just listening to Professor Gerald Edelman from the Neurosciences Institute discussing the scientific exploration of consciousness, as explained in his book, Wider Than the Sky. You are listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out why do zebras have stripes. So stay tuned. Maybe I didn't love you. Quite as often as I could have And maybe I didn't treat you Quite as good as I should have If I made you feel second best Girl, I'm sorry I was blind You were always on my mind You were always on my mind And welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why zebras have stripes? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. And kangaroos do what kangaroos Ever wonder why zebras have stripes? The answer can be found in everyday science. To learn about zebras, let's go on a safari to Africa. Right now, we're on the very edge of an African plain. There goes a herd of elephants, a herd of gazelles, and here come the zebras. Now, look over on that ridge. That's right, a lion. The cat surveys the glade. It's almost like he's at a buffet table choosing what to dine on this evening. He recognizes the elephants with their gray, massive shapes. The gazelles with their leaping silhouettes are also familiar. But when it comes to zebras, well, that's a little tougher. All because a zebra's stripes create something called disruptive coloration. See, all those stripes break up the contours of the zebra's body. So there's not a clear shape or a silhouette. And that makes it hard for this lion to know what type of animal this is, how many there are, 
or if it's an animal at all. And when a zebra starts to move, those stripes become even more confusing, especially if he's traveling in a herd. So, as our lion examines this wildlife smorgasbord, he decides to pass on the zebra, or whatever it is, and sample some other, more understandable delicacy. And that's why, no matter how popular polka dots, plaid, or flowered prints may be, for a zebra, stripes are always in. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Ooh, Everyday Science Lady. You know, no stripes could hide the contours of your infinite science knowledge. And now here's Outback Bob with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, hey, Black Rocky, I'm wandering around through the middle of Wildebeest. This is really wild, and, you know, you have to carve yourself through these Wildebeest. They're crazy! Hey, <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Well, I'm here to give you the answer to last week's question of the week, Hey, It's them koalas, and they're always eating all sorts of strange things. But the question is, what they eat? Well, it's those weird eucalyptus leaves. And it's very strange, but they love them so much. Alright, and now here's Jedi Master Yoda with this week's Question of the Week. Hmm, thank you! Walking through the swamp, dangerous it is. Smelling my feet becomes... But what causes this? Hmm, if you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your feet might just smell a little better. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.